Zelensky pleads for help, a Supreme Court nominee pleads for fairness, and Iowa pleads for the status quo. It's March Madness on The Political Junkie. You like Ike, I like Ike, everybody likes Ike for president. Add Ike to you, add Ike to me, I don't care how you quote it. Come on and vote for Kennedy, vote for Kennedy, and we'll come out on top. Vote for Richard Nixon and Henry Cabot Lodge, cause they're the ones to lead the USA. Thanks for joining us, and welcome to episode 384 of The Political Junkie. I'm Ken Rudin. The carnage continues day after horrific day. Scenes of bombs and missiles hitting Ukrainian apartment buildings and hospitals, war crimes all, and a sense of impotence over what the U.S. can and will do. The Ukrainian people are putting up a courageous battle, more impressive than anyone thought possible. But the death toll mounts. On Wednesday, there were reports of a Russian bomb hitting a theater where hundreds of civilians were taking shelter. Earlier in the day, Ukrainian President Zelensky made an emotional appeal to Congress, invoking the attack on Pearl Harbor and 9-11 and Dr. Martin Luther King. The address via video link was translated into English and it was followed by a heart-wrenchingly graphic video about the destruction Moscow has caused in his country. And then he ended his appeal in English. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine. We are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. That's why today the American people are helping not just Ukraine, but Europe and the world to keep the planet alive, to keep justice in history. And as the leader of my nation, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. What Zelensky wants most, a no-fly zone over the skies of Ukraine and MiG-21 fighter jets currently in the possession of Poland, is not going to happen. Would lead to World War III, Washington warns. But he is getting about a billion dollars worth of military aid designed to keep Moscow at bay for as long as possible. The reception Zelensky got from Congress was bipartisan approval. If you're looking for memorable images, how about the one during the speech showing Kevin McCarthy sitting next to his California colleague Maxine Waters, a pairing as unfathomable as one can imagine. The most interesting thing has been the Republican shift on Russia's war crimes. For the longest time, the GOP right was more filled with praise for Putin than Biden. Donald Trump, of course, has been singing the praises of Putin since the days of the Obama administration. Here he is with MSNBC's Morning Joe back in 2015. He's running this country, and at least he's a leader, you know, unlike what we have in this country. But again, he kills journalists that don't agree with him. Well, I think uh, our country does plenty of killing also, Joe. But Trump never broke stride on the Russian leader. Here he was at CPAC just last month. 
Yesterday, reporters asked me if I thought President Putin was smart. I said, of course he's smart, to which I was greeted with, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. <laughs> the problem is not that Putin is smart. The real problem is that our leaders are dumb. If the GOP has pivoted when it comes to denouncing Putin, and it has since the invasion, many still put the blame squarely on Joe Biden's shoulders. Mike Pompeo, Trump's Secretary of State, said this on C-SPAN. They took a fifth of the country under President Obama when Biden was vice president. I am, and President Biden has now told him you can make a minor incursion into the country and that'll all be square and just, uh, just spiffy by me. Those are, those are signs of feebleness, signs of weakness, and those are the kind of things that never happened during our four years. And this theme has been shared by GOP candidates for office around the country. Here's J.D. Vance, an Ohio Republican running for the Senate about a month ago. I think it's ridiculous that we're focused on this border in Ukraine. Uh, I don't, I gotta be honest with you, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. I do care about the fact that in my community right now, the leading cause of death among 18 to 45 year olds is Mexican fentanyl that's coming across the southern border. I'm sick of Joe Biden focusing on the border of a country I don't care about while he lets the border of his own country become a total war zone. It's no longer that Putin is the good guy. That's no longer acceptable. It's that Biden is the weak guy. We keep hearing that Putin took Crimea when Obama was in the White House and invaded Ukraine with Biden as president, but he would never have done so with a President Trump. The reason? Because Trump was a strong leader compared to Obama and Biden. He never would have let that happen. Of course, there was no reason for Putin to do anything reckless during the Trump years because Trump did a lot of Putin's work for him. His denunciation of American allies, his constant criticism of NATO. He even had language supporting Ukraine removed from the 2016 Republican platform. Lest we forget, Trump was impeached the first time because he threatened to withhold military aid to Ukraine unless Zelensky was able to come up with dirt on Joe and Hunter Biden. Humiliating the new Ukrainian president was music to Putin's ears. And so, to no surprise, a pre-Russian invasion Fox News poll showed more Republicans having a negative view of Biden than Putin. I'm taking this little detour into the past to remind you all the times Trump and some Republicans had willfully lined up behind Putin and against the U.S. But with the Russian invasion, when Putin's actions were too grotesque for even some Republicans to defend, the GOP line instead became, Joe Biden is letting down Ukraine because he's weak. Of course, there are always some in the party who will stick with Trumpian ideas. North Carolina's Madison Cawthon, who last week called Zelensky a thug and the Ukrainian government incredibly corrupt and very vile, made a point of showing up in the House chamber as Zelensky was almost finished with his speech and then made critical comments. And as members of Congress were giving Zelensky a standing ovation after his address, George's Marjorie Taylor Greene was shown on camera pointedly not clapping, but instead reaching for her cell phone perhaps to call in for an order of gazpacho. Of course, there's the nightly Fox News display of fake facts regarding U.S. foreign policy by Tucker Carlson and his new best friend Tulsi Gabbard, once a left-wing Democratic congresswoman and now a right-wing Fox favorite. It is no wonder why Carlson's words are repeated on RT, 
the TV mouthpiece of the Kremlin. Meanwhile, we are nowhere clearer about how this nightmare will end than we were a week ago. As the U.S. continues to insist that sanctions are working and are really hurting Moscow, the fact is you'd never know it by Russia's war effort, a continuing bombardment of civilian areas that shows no sign of slowing down. The point is no one, for the most part anyway, is hoping for a World War III. As gut-wrenching as the scenes of the carnage have been, no one is advocating sending U.S. troops. There is, so far, no effort to establish a no-fly zone over the skies of Ukraine. It's unclear if what the U.S. is doing, sending in anti-aircraft missiles and drones, will make a difference for Kyiv's chances or will just extend the fighting for a while until Moscow's victory is complete. All we know is that the bloodbath continues and more are dying every day. And what if Putin is not satisfied with Ukraine? What if, in his deranged desire to bring back the glory days of the Soviet Union, he makes a move into Lithuania or Poland? Both are NATO members. The U.S. is committed to defend its fellow NATO members. But who's to say what a more and more erratic Putin will do? Should that happen? All bets are off. For Putin, for Europe, for the world. Make a grave for the unknown soldier Nestled in your hollow shoulder The unknown soldier Hampshire had the headlines and the attention all to itself. Starting in 1952, it was the state whose primary led off the presidential election cycle. And headlines there were. In 1952, it was the nation's first presidential primary and a record one. And when the ballots were totted up, it was a clean sweep for General Eisenhower on the Republican side and for Senator Estes Kefauver heading the Democratic slate. In 1964, the presidential hopes of Barry Goldwater and Nelson Rockefeller snowed under by a write-in vote for Henry Cabot Lodge, the man who did no campaigning and was half a world away. Despite the weather, the turnout was heavy. 100,000 were expected to vote, substantially more than 80,000 cast their ballots, and 35% wrote in a name, Henry Cabot Lodge. And in 1968... By any political measure, President Johnson has suffered a major psychological setback in New Hampshire. Iowa decided to crash the Granite State Party in 1976, holding its caucuses before New Hampshire's primary and getting the presidential candidates of both parties to show up. New Hampshire state law declared that it would hold the first presidential primary, but Iowa was not violating that since theirs was a caucus, not a primary. And so we had the Iowa caucuses followed by the New Hampshire primary. 
But every now and then there have been efforts by Democrats to move another state in front of Iowa with the same arguments. It is too white. There is no diversity. The numbers don't reflect the Democratic Party's demographics. Look at the numbers in Iowa. The state is 83% white, and 91% of the attendees at the Democratic caucuses in 2020 were white. More recently, Iowa found itself with additional problems. Its caucus system resulted in total snafus. First, in 2012, they called Mitt Romney the winner on the Republican side, only to backtrack a few days later when they realized Rick Santorum was the actual winner. Four years later, it was the Democrats' turn to make a mess of things. Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders ran against each other, and nobody knew what was going on with the count. And if that wasn't enough, it took Iowa Democrats days before they could decide who won the 2020 caucuses. So if you needed a reason to remove Iowa as the lead off state, look no further than these screw-ups. If they couldn't get their act together, the argument goes, should they be given the opportunity to start the process? The DNC is about to put together its calendar for 2024, and Iowa, both for its snafus and lack of diversity, is likely to be removed from its standalone lead-off perch. Mo Alethi is the executive director of the Institute of Politics and Public Service at Georgetown University. He's also a commentator on Fox News and served as communications director at the DNC, and before that, the senior spokesman for the Hillary Clinton campaign in 2008. Mo, it's great having you on The Political Junkie. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, it seems like every time I mention the word Iowa uh, to a Democratic official the past several years, he or she has this look of disgust on their face, like, like, please don't remind me. And I failed to mention that you're also a member of the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee, and that committee has already started the process of deciding who goes first in 2024. So let me ask you, is the argument against Iowa leading the calendar once again based on its demographics or its recent history of an inability to count votes, or is it both? So I, I think about this a little bit differently. I, I think it is important for the DNC, as it looks at the process and putting together the calendar, to take a big step back. And as you know, the DNC rules say that no state can hold its primary before the date certain. I believe it's March 1st. But certain states will be granted waivers to go before that. That's called the early window. And those states are currently Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, and South Carolina. Those are the early states. In that order, right. In that order. And the name of the game, you know, to win the nomination is delegates. But that early window ends up winnowing the field not because of delegates, more because of momentum. Right, the candidates, you start to see a winnowing effect, which means that the candidates are spending a ton of time, an inordinate amount of time in those early states, and primarily Iowa and New Hampshire. So my argument is that this is an opportunity for, for the Democratic Party to take a step back and look at that and say, well, who is it that we want to grant that momentum? What, is it, what are the values we want to communicate through our calendar? And I believe that there are really four things that if you sort of take a step back at the end of that window, you want to communicate, you want to convey. Number one, that the states that participated in that early window 
were diverse. And that means all of the diversity, not just white, but, you know, you wanted to have racial diversity and ethnic diversity. You wanted to have geographic diversity. You wanted to have urban and rural diversity. And so you can take a, take a step back and say this was a diverse field of voters that, that had a voice in the early process. That's number one. Number two, at a time when the Democratic Party is fighting efforts that would make it more difficult to vote, we should want this early window to be as participatory as possible, to have as many people engaged in the process as possible. My opinion is that it is really hard to do that with caucuses, that caucuses are by nature restrictive. You can only go and participate in the caucus during a small window of time. That makes it difficult for working families to participate. Only the most engaged grassroots activists tend to participate. It is hard to make an argument that a caucus is as participatory as a primary. More people participate in primaries. More people vote in primaries than attend caucuses. DNC took a major step towards that in the 2020 cycle. The number of states that offer caucuses is just a fraction of what it used to be. But you still have Iowa as the lead-off contest with a caucus. I think that's problematic. So that's number two. Number three, you want to, at a time when a lot of people are questioning our electoral process, you want it to instill confidence. You want the states that participate to instill confidence in the voting process. And I think what we saw in 2020, caucuses lend themselves to more questions and concerns than primaries do. And I think what we've seen out of Iowa is too, too many um, instances in the past decade where the process was questionable. And then finally, you, I believe that you know, if the DNC's job is to help elect a president that the process should make it as easy as possible. And so you want as many battleground states involved in the process as early as possible. Given how much time the candidates spend in the early states, I mean, they're there for practically a, a year, uh, spending almost all of their time in those early states. It's to the benefit of the Democratic Party to have the Democratic candidates communicating their message in front of general election battleground state voters. So I think we should try to have as many battleground states in that early window as possible. If you take a step back and look at the early window through that prism and those four, those four values, I can see a case for New Hampshire. I can see a case for Nevada. I can see a case for South Carolina. But Iowa is really difficult for me to see a case because it is not the most diverse state. It is not the most participatory state. It hasn't really instilled confidence in its process, and, uh, and it is less and less a battleground state with each passing year. I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, like, uh, as you say about Iowa and being a competitive state, it's become much more Republican, much more conservative. You know, the days of, of Harold Hughes and John Culver and, and Tom Harkin have been replaced by Joni Ernst and Kim Reynolds and Chuck Grassley. It's no longer a swing state. And there are some people who are talking about maybe perhaps having all four states go at the same time. Is that a serious uh, consideration? I haven't heard much talk about that. 
But, you know, the way this process is going to work is I think at, at the next Rules and Bylaws Committee, the DNC will adopt a framework. You know, I, I, I am hopeful it is similar to the one I just laid out. And then once that framework is adopted, any state that wants to go in the early window will have a chance to make its case. Will have a chance, they'll have a chance to present its argument as to why it should go first or go in that early window, at which point, after all those states make their cases, the Rules and Bylaws Committee will make their recommendation. So, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing those cases. I'm looking forward to Iowa making a case, right? If they can prove me wrong uh, by making a strong argument, then they should be given consideration. Um, I'm not sure that I've heard a lot about trying to put all four states on the same day. I've heard some talk about maybe expanding to five states instead of four, which is interesting. But I think it's going to depend on the case that each state makes as to why it should go first um, or go early. And, um, and then they'll start to put together a, a calendar. Um, I think there's a lot of states though, that can make a good case. There's a lot of states that are eager to have their voices heard. Um, so I don't think it's really a good time to stand on tradition when there's a lot of great opportunities out there. I just remember after what happened in 2020, even Democrats from Iowa were telling me that, okay, we had our chance and we blew it. Uh, I I would love to hear, like you just said, I would love to hear what the argument is for Iowa to continue as first. They will have an opportunity to make the case as why they should stay in the window. I think it's a tough sell for someone like me, but they're going to have that chance. Joe Biden finished fourth in the Iowa caucuses and fifth in New Hampshire. Is he expected to have a say in any of this? I, I assume you guys are talking with the folks at the White House. Well, I'm not involved in any conversations with the White House. Um, ultimately, it's a, it's a DNC decision. Uh, you know, the president is, you know, and this is always true, whoever's in the White House is, tends to be the, the head of, of their party. But, look, I think one of the reasons to do this now instead of waiting four years from now is because we have an incumbent president who intends to run for re-election. So we can actually put together a process that is not, you know, in 2008 when there were some changes to the, part, to the calendar, a lot of people were trying to figure out who does it politically benefit. Does it politically benefit Hillary or Obama or John Edwards or one of the other candidates? We don't have that question this time. We have a president who intends to run for re-election. So we can actually make this conversation about what is right for the party moving forward without any of those considerations, and I think that's important. By the way, for the record, I mean, we were only talking about, of course, only talking about Democrats. You know, I mean, Republicans are hardly going to give up on Iowa and New Hampshire because they're too white. Is it it fair to assume that Republicans are are not going to tinker with their calendar? You know, look, I have no idea what Republicans are going to do. I think for the most part, you know, both parties have the same four early states. But even then, it's not 100. It doesn't track 100 percent. As you know, Nevada and South Carolina are reversed on the Republican side. On the Democratic side, Nevada is third, South Carolina is fourth. It's the opposite on the on the Republican side. So they'll do what they think is best for their party. We're trying to do what what we think is best for, for ours. When do you think a final decision is going to be made? My uh, every expectation from what I hear is that it needs to be wrapped up by the DNC's uh, summer meeting, which will take place in August, early September, sometime in that range. And that's when the DNC will vote on the calendar for um, 
for the 24 election. So and that, it's got to kind of be done by then to have the process then move forward out in the states to start getting ready for, for the 24 cycle. Mo Alethi is the executive director of the Institute of Politics and Public Service at Georgetown University and a member of the DNC's Rules and Bylaws Committee, which is determining whether to change the calendar for the 2024 presidential nominating process. Mo, it was just wonderful having you on the program. I'm so honored uh, to have been included. Don't take your love away from me. Don't you leave my heart in misery. If you go, then I'll be blue. Cause breaking up is hard to do. With 35 Senate seats up for grabs in November, in a Senate that's currently split at 50-50, every seat is crucial and has the potential for deciding which party takes control next year. Well, maybe not every seat. It's fair to say that Oklahoma is not going to be on anyone's watch list. The seat of Senator James Lankford is all but certain to stay in Republican hands, even as Lankford faces a primary challenge from his right. And that's also the case with the other Senate seat, which suddenly became open with the upcoming resignation of Jim Inhofe that took the political world by surprise. Uh, first of all, I am announcing my, uh, my um, uh, I will be leaving the United States Senate uh, on, the third, uh, on the 3rd of January. Inhofe is 87 years old and is suffering from what his office is calling a mild case of COVID. He has been unbeatable at home, winning five full terms since his initial 1994 victory. Before that, he served four terms in the House and three as mayor of Tulsa. Randy Crable is a longtime political reporter with the Tulsa World and is following the Inhofe saga. Randy, welcome back to The Political Junkie. Thanks for asking me. Senator Inhofe was re-elected in 2020. That's just 16 months ago. Now, he had already announced he wouldn't run again in 2026, but, but what led him to leave office early? Well, I, you know, that, that's a matter of some discussion, I, but I think some of it uh, perhaps was uh, the health of his wife, and, and perhaps maybe he was feeling it too. You know, Senator Inhofe took a lot of, uh, criticism at home because he would not go along with uh, some of the other Republicans in trying to uh, block the, the certification of the Electoral College. He said he, it was his, his constitutional duty to, uh, to vote to accept the results, and, uh, and he couldn't go against that. And I, and I think he was surprised and kind of hurt by, by the reaction he got at home. So I don't know how all of that you know, comes together. But at any rate, uh, I, I would say that it was it, it was a surprise, but not unexpected. I mean, you know, as you mentioned, he's 87 years old. So at the back of your mind, you're thinking, well, maybe he'll serve until he's 92, but maybe he won't either. Given the fact that he is so conservative, I mean, he's one of the most conservative senators in the Senate, for him to kind of like break with the Trumpers, uh, that, that's a bit of a surprise. 
Well, yes and no, in that he he was never a huge Trump fan. He could do business with Trump, so to speak, but he, you know, he would be the first to admit that Trump was never his uh, first choice. And then um, he he and Trump kind of had a falling out at the end of Trump's term over several things. And um, and then I I really do think that he just felt like that that uh, he could not go along with what what they were talking about. There was some confusion over the timing of his resignation. Like if like if he left earlier, the governor could name his successor. But but the way Inhofe timed it, it assures, assures us there'll be a special election. Can you explain that for us? Right. Yeah, and it was doubly uh, um, confusing because the law only went into effect last year, and and it was passed, I think, specifically with Inhofe in mind. Since the 1960s, Oklahoma has had no mechanism for replacing a U.S. senator in mid in midterm, uh, other than a special election, and and special elections in Oklahoma can only be held in in even numbered years. So the the rule the the law is that if he had resigned or had left office, uh, if a vacancy had occurred before March 1st of this year then the governor could appoint a replacement. But if it was after March the 1st, then uh, it's a special election on the the regular uh, election cycle, in other words, concurrently with with all the other elections. The same day that Inhofe announced his retirement, he endorses Chief of Staff Luke Holland as his successor. Was this perhaps one reason why he preferred a primary rather than have the governor appoint someone to the seat? I don't know. I mean, there's there's some thought that he actually tried to get he might have resigned earlier and tried to get the governor to appoint Luke and um, the governor wouldn't do it. I, I, I don't know. I think I think the deadline had something to do with it, but it's unclear what what that was. This was for something that had in some ways been anticipated or at least thought, you know, very possible. This seemed to be kind of a hurried hurried decision. And then he's going to wait until next, uh, early next year to actually leave office. So it is a little bit of a confusing thing, and it, it hasn't been sorted out yet. He's been around for a long time, as you know, first elected in 1994. Uh, before that, he was in the House and he was mayor. Um, but what kind of a senator has he been? I mean, obviously very conservative, but how would you describe, uh, describe Jim Inhofe? He's a, I would say as he's a really a, a meat and potatoes uh, politician. He's, he's defense, he's infrastructure, and, and uh, uh, kind of a traditional politician in this, or uh, conservative in the sense of he might, he might quarrel about uh, how big the pot is, but when, once the size of the pot is determined, he will, you know, fight for his state share of it. Um, and he was always pretty, he's always been pretty plain spoken. You always knew where he stood on things. He wouldn't, he wouldn't usually say one thing and do something else. He, he was, he, he, uh, he, he was pretty consistent over the years. And, and, you know, sometimes he was consistent in ways that made people uh, r- roll their eyes, like with some of the environmental stuff. 
But on the other hand, he was a guy. If you were if you were going to be in a fight in the Senate, you wanted him on your side because he was he he's always been pretty tough. You mentioned the environmental stuff. Um, he has long called global warming a hoax, and there was that <laughs> that famous moment on the Senate floor when. I guess it was 2014 when he said, you know, he said 2014 was one of the warmest years on record. But how could that be, he wondered. And then he took out a snowball and threw it somewhere. In case we have forgotten, because we keep hearing that 2014 has been the warmest year on record, I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. And that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> <Yeah>. odd, no? <laughs> yeah, right. That was well. Yeah, he and he he would he would do some of those uh, types of things. You know, um, one of the things about Oklahoma is it's pretty hard to get anywhere in politics in this state unless you uh, are uh, you have the endorsement of the oil and gas industry. And, you know, he always felt like, again, he, he thought of things in pretty basic terms. And for him, a lot of the environmental stuff went against uh, the oil and gas production, and oil and gas was uh, the basis of a lot of the state's uh, economy. And uh, it was where a lot of the people who supported him made their money. And so he was going to be for oil and gas. And... Uh, you know, at times, and he, he was he was not always terribly consistent about, he's not always been terribly consistent about uh, environmental stuff in this regard. Sometimes he would say that, yeah, it was possible that, there is, that global warming itself is not a hoax. He just felt like that a lot of the um, discussion around it was overblown and that yeah, maybe we're having some climate change, but it'll cost more to to, to fix it or to or to uh, go around it than it will to just live through it. But uh, yeah, he again, he he was just a real he's just a really basic guy, you know, and and he took a pretty direct approach to everything. Well, we'll talk about direct approaches. I remember when he was pretty much unknown when he ran for governor back in 1974, he was a Republican nominee. And, and what I remember about that race is that he called for Jane Fonda to be hanged for treason. That's a, that's an interesting policy to be for governor of Oklahoma. You know, he, he maintains to this day that he really, he believed that he was going to win that election. And that was at a time, you know, when we'd had a couple of Republican, uh, uh, governors, but it was still a pretty a democratic state, and uh, that was actually that was actually the first election I could vote in was <laughs> was was when Jim Inhofe ran for governor. He ran against David Boren. You know, uh, Jim Inhofe claims that they'd set this deal up that that uh, there was an incumbent governor, a Democratic governor named David Hall, who'd had a lot of legal problems, to say the least. Yeah, right. And so David Bourne was going to go after David Hall and, and take him out, which he did. But then uh, Jim Inhofe was going to come along then and win the general election. Well, it didn't work, work out that way because David Bourne turned out to be an, an enormous, enormously charismatic figure and, and uh, went on to his own career. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I'd forgotten about that. But, yes, he was uh, – he's always been – 
and he, you know, sometimes, but he just, you know, he's kind of a bulldog. He just, he just goes straight. I think the only way he knows to get anything done is straight ahead. Well, it's a good thing that David Boring was elected because, uh, as it turned out, Jane Fonda was not hanged for treason. So, so that turned out to be a good thing, right? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Well, I think she would have first had to come to Oklahoma for him <laughs> to be <laughs> right, and that was that was on her way back from that was on her way back from Hanoi. So that would have been perfect for him. <laughs> right. 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 She would have to come here for him to her to be in his uh, jurisdiction. But anyway, yeah. You know, there's a, I mean, obviously, whenever there's an opening, and considering the fact that Oklahoma is rock rib Republican, and as you say, wasn't always, but it certainly is now, um, there's going to be a lot of candidates getting in the race in addition to his chief of staff, Luke Holland. I mean, Mark Wayne Mullen, uh, the congressman from Tulsa, is already in the race. I'm in. I'm not one to back away from a fight. In fact, I believe 100% if you're going to get in the fight, you win it. So we're in it to win it. How would you assess his chances? I get the feeling that there's going to be a lot of more candidates likely to get in the race. You would think so, uh, but I'm a little surprised that they haven't already. So right now we have uh, the ones who have announced, you'd think Mark Wayne would probably be the favorite. Uh, he's, he's better known, better known, although, you know, how much he's known outside of, uh, uh, Eastern Oklahoma, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think he's still better known than Luke Holland. And then there's a state senator named Nathan Dahm who's running, and he's he's not. I don't I don't think he will get there. Um, he although he does have the endorsement of Rand Paul, um, who actually is one of the colleagues of, that uh, Senator Inhofe <laughs> most dislikes. You know, there's been some talk about J.C. Watts coming back. Yeah, I saw that. You know, you would think that if if somebody was going to get in that, they would want to do it pretty quickly because the primary is June the 28th. So, uh, and uh, uh, filing is next month in April. So you would think they'd want to get started here pretty quickly if they're going to, if they're going to try and make a run. No Democrat has won a Senate race since the aforementioned David Boren, and that was when he was last reelected in 1990, that was 32 years ago. Is it fair to assume that that trend is going to continue? Yeah, I don't, I don't think, uh, first of all, the only Democrats that have announced are, are really, nobody knows who they are. So no, I don't, I don't, I don't know what it would take to get a Democrat elected, but it's beyond my imagination at this point. So when we're all sitting and biting our nails in November about a 50-50 Senate and which way it's going to go, uh, we don't have to bite our nails about Oklahoma, right? No, no. This one is, uh, th- I'm afraid that this one will be uh, called uh, within 30 seconds after <laughs> the polls are closed. Randy Crable is a veteran political reporter with the Tulsa World. Randy, it was great having you back on the show. Thanks a lot. Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plain, and the waving wheat can sure smell sweet when the wind comes right behind the rain. Oklahoma, every night my honey lamb and I sit alone and talk and watch a hawk making lazy circles in the sky. We know we That's it for this week's show. 
Don't forget, you can always find my political blogs, trivia questions, and the Political Junkie store, all at krpoliticaljunkie.com. If you've got comments, questions, or complaints, send an email to ken at krpoliticaljunkie.com. You can also tweet me at Ken Rudin or shoot me a message on the show's Facebook page. And you can follow my button of the day on Instagram at The Political Junkie. Political Junkie is made possible thanks to the support of our listeners and donors. Your generous contributions are most appreciated. Keep them coming at krpoliticaljunkie.com slash donate. I'm Ken Rudin. Thanks for listening. Please stay safe. I'll see you soon. Making lazy circles in the sky.